26 words, six months work. Do you like those words? Do you like them? Do you, does your heart say yes? Thank you. We, when, we, when we put them up, it was lovely to actually watch the faces of the congregation. We saw some smiles, and some of you actually nodded back to us as if to say, we recognize this in our spirits. We hope that you feel it's a true honoring of the conversations that we have gone through as a call. Of course, the word welcome can be taken and abused and it can be shallow and superficial. And that's why the leadership team specifically asked um, as we went through this process, if in introducing this um, theology of welcome to you, we could make sure that we embedded in the life of the teaching and preaching of the church regular sort of emphases on the theology of welcome so that we didn't kind of take it at too shallow a level because you can read that word welcome at different levels, can't you? A nice handshake at the door, which of course welcome is, but it, it is so much more than that. And when we talked it together and prayed it together, we realized what a costly word this is going to be, a demanding and a tough word for our church too. It's not, it's not all going to be nice and fun. It's going to be that, but it's sometimes going to be difficult and challenging about some of the hard questions that we have to ask ourselves of who we are and who we want to be if we're going to take biblical welcome seriously. And that's why we're going to twice a year come back to that statement and, and kind of preach and teach different aspects of welcome. Is that okay for you? In the meantime, um, you only have to read through the second and third pages, the, which we'll do in our reflection time this morning, uh, around the theology of welcome that's there for you, and you'll realize it's not a cheap word. But we have them, our 26 words. And now going forwards, these 26 words must drive everything. How we spend our money, how we spend our time, what we do with the resources we have, how we put new shapes into our building, the kind of furniture, even the colors on the walls, who we let into our groups or not. This is gonna to have to be part of the discussion or else it's no point. They are not 26 words to be put in a drawer and left. And that's why if you were on Oxford Street and somebody said, what's your church about? You should be able to tell them that. That's why we need to recite them and get, get to memorize them. The two parables we read this morning are windows into a kingdom kind of welcome. The first is the parable of the marriage feast. It's a kind of overall, overarching welcome to enter into the life and love of God's son, Jesus. It's a reminder that God's not pursuing a business deal with us or a casual affair, but a covenant relationship we thought about covenant relationships again yesterday when Nathaniel and Tamsin pledged their vows, their covenant with each other and with God. A covenant relationship is what God wants, one that's not going to just skim over the surface of our lives, but it's going to transform our priorities and our passions. 
And then we come to the second parable, this parable of the sheep and the goats, that very confusing parable in some ways. So often we look at that parable as a parable, as a command to go and do something, don't we? Go and feed the hungry. Go and give a cup of water. And of course it is that at one level. It is about that. It is about doing things. It's about um, action. But I would contend this morning that it's just as importantly a parable about welcome. About those who invite others and therefore Jesus into their home. And those who choose not to invite others and therefore in that rejection they also reject Jesus. It is a parable, that second one, about the end times, the ultimate, the final things. And people have argued about who the sheep and the goats are, but we're not going to do that this morning. We're going to say instead that the parable says that both sheep and the goats are going to be equally stunned to find that such inclusive, basic, ordinary acts of welcome matter so much to God. That's stunning, isn't it? So much so that we can ask the question, could it really be that our eternal destiny hangs on the kind of welcome we live out? Jesus' first audience who heard these words wouldn't have been really that surprised as the words, those stunning words of welcome that Jesus challenges us to, um, as we are. You see, in the first century AD, welcome was kind of woven into the fabric of society. Welcome was a cultural practice. It had to be or else you wouldn't survive in those days. Just like today, we can't survive without roads. We couldn't survive without electricity. We certainly couldn't survive without the internet. Life then depended on hospitality and welcome as a cultural necessity. And I guess until we backpack in a strange city, or unless we lose our homes, or unless we're traveling through a violent area and we break down, we can't really connect until those extreme circumstances with what it is to be in desperate need of that kind of welcome. But if you're a first century person in the time of Jesus, you know that survival depends on the kindness of strangers. You depend on people you don't know to take you in. Without a generous welcome, you might not survive the night. It's literally going to save you. So that's why most ancient civilizations practiced hospitality and welcome on a grand scale. They actually had to do that for social cohesion. Uniquely, absolutely uniquely, the people of Israel take welcome to a whole new level. In the Bible, welcome is not simply for the sake of survival or society managing to sustain itself. Biblical welcome, 
unlike those other civilizations, say that welcome is a high calling. It's a spiritual discipline. It's a heart response to Yahweh, our welcoming God. Now that's unique to ancient biblical faith. That's incredible, isn't it? We need to put that line in this morning and say, praise God for biblical welcome. That is so different to the fact we have to be welcoming or else none of us will survive. A whole new level. Paul, in the early church, urges people to live out their faith by being welcoming. He says, share with God's people who are in need. In her studies, church historian Amy Oden uncovered in her research, 300 pages of quotations from early church leaders urging the practice of outreaching, risk-taking, stranger-embracing welcome. And such willingness to share their lives and to share their lives and possessions amongst the early Christian community with a stunningly diverse range of people is evidence to a world looking on, sometimes in a very hostile way, that a different kind of kingdom is establishing itself in their midst. You see, the truth is, we serve a welcoming God who is hospitable from beginning to end. A God who lacks nothing, doesn't need to be welcoming to us, and yet chooses to create a world, a space for us to occupy and enjoy. If that isn't the original act of welcome, creation, I do not know what is. A God who sends his son to enter our life and continues in staggering, outrageous welcome to make room for all kinds of us the strange, the struggling, the hard-hearted, the hot-headed, the eccentric, like Nathaniel was talking last night, the lonely, the sick, the dying. A God who in Christ stretches out his arms and makes room for our private petty sins and the sins of the whole world. And this God doesn't stop, but declares a final banquet in Revelation, a future banquet to which all who humbly come are invited. Revelation 7. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, They were wearing white robes, holding palms, branches in their hands. He who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now this is a vision of welcome to all nations and all tribes beyond 
anything you or I have capacity to deliver. Of course, welcome is always in danger of being dumbed down, which is why the leadership team quite rightly called Richard and me to account for some preaching and teaching on it. It can get dumbed down, that word, can't it, to notions of private, cosy suppers with those we prefer or a handshake that stops at the door. Now, not to say that that handshake isn't important and thank God for a wonderful welcome team. But if it stops at the door, we're done for. Welcome is fragile and likely to break down when it starts to discomfort our little clubs and cliques. Welcome can be abused by those enjoying it most. Welcome can offend us when we have to give up our seat for somebody we don't know. Or worse, give up a prejudice. Welcome can make us feel uncomfortable because it jolly well sometimes is. We like, for example, to think that we're a welcoming church. Most churches list welcome as a high priority. If you, if you research, there's been some research to say what, 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 what do churches put highest on the list? Most will say welcome. But research sadly suggests that that kind of welcome tends to be focused towards those we already know or the kind of person who is similar to us. Once um, a student Salvation Army officer visited a previous appointment, a church we were leading, a Salvation Army church, came to us one particular Sunday. You know, it was really impressive the number of people, and it was a beautiful church like Regent Hall. I would say it was a very welcoming church. But it was impressive the number who gathered around this person, invited them out for Sunday lunch with them. He left wishing he could come to our church every week. The trouble was, and we were the church leaders there and we could see this, there were others in the room that same day who didn't receive that same kind of welcome. I don't think it was intentional. The people were too loving to mean to do that. But that person, that group of people were excluded and they saw the person who did get the invitation. See, they didn't quite fit and they went home lonely. And so the text for us holds up a mirror and our vision statement is a mirror for us to live by about how far we are prepared for this welcome to extend in the name of Jesus. Or when do we actually start screening people out inadvertently? When do we start denying people? You see, it tests not what we say we are, 
but what we're actually going to do, what decisions we're going to make. It's going to test not just our words, but how we make people feel across the board. And so we need, we're going to need to be vigilant in living this out, in safeguarding the welcome of Jesus, who calls us to live in a radically different way. And so in conclusion this morning, I think this vision statement can challenge us in three ways as we commit to it. First of all, the theology of welcome can kind of serve as a form of repentance for us. That's a funny one, isn't it? It's odd. But the reason I say that is because we know we are going to fail sometimes. We're going to get this wrong. We already get it wrong sometimes. And radical welcome is countercultural, isn't it? It's going to unnerve us. We're going to, that metaphor, going to have to move our seats around. We're going to have to change chairs, do things differently to get it right. And we will fail. And then when we fail, continuing to be welcoming is like our confession. It's going to be like an act of penance. We're going to say, we're sorry, God. We got that wrong. So we're going to go back and we're going to do it again and again and again. And we will seek forgiveness when we get it wrong in order to be grafted back into the welcome of God to do it right. Can we say an amen to that? And then it's going to also serve as a form of worship for us. You see, to sing and to pray and to pass the peace, to listen to God's word, and in other churches, but for us metaphorically, to feast at God's table enables us to practice welcome one in seven. Today and every Sunday is a foretaste of heaven as we welcome all in the name of Jesus into the body of Christ and the healing that comes with it. Amen. And finally, welcome can serve as a form of discipleship. Because we're going to have to practice this. We're going to have to learn the craft of welcome. Of slowly cultivating eyes to better see the stranger in our midst. And to not only see them with our eyes, but to see them with our hearts. And do you know what? That stranger might be me on any particular Sunday when I'm feeling cut off from the world inside and I'm standing here and feeling a bit lonely for reasons I can't make out. It's just how I feel that day. I might be the stranger for you feeling that one day. You might be the stranger. It might be somebody walking through our doors. And in the stranger, we will slowly learn to recognize Christ as the scriptures. For in the stranger we find God who is at work within us, teaching us how to welcome in his name. Amen. Finally this morning, welcome. It's not an option. Not if we are who we say we are. 
It never was, of course, was it? To be a Christian was never an option. But having set our hearts on a theology of welcome, it certainly isn't now. It's not for the trained or the gifted. It's a corporate way of life. Neither is welcome a means to an end. There's no payoff in it. It's just outrageous, just for itself, just as God's welcome is there infusing the world with the good news. Welcome isn't fancy and it's not loud. It's actions, simple actions. And what most delights Richard and me about this church, well, lots of things delight us about you. But one of the things we love is when we discover the little bits behind the scenes, the hidden stuff, little acts of welcome that go across the barriers, that cross divisions, that dismantle screening. We love it when we see those breakdowns of walls and people coming together in different ways. Although personal welcome is personal, it also, if we're serious about this, is going to require institutionalization. Do you know what I mean by that? What I mean is we're going to have to build organized pathways for welcome too across our church family. As well as you doing your bit, your personal bits, we're going to have to make sure in the governance of this church, in its structure, in its design of its building, that our building, our structures, and our programs are all designed and robust for welcome and inclusion. And we already seek to improve these. Finally, Welcome is not what we achieve. It's who we become in Christ. But we fail. You know, Regent Hall, you've had, you've had a long history of being welcoming. And we completely honour who you are for that. There are people in this room today who say they wouldn't be here if Regent Hall hadn't offered them the welcome of Jesus. But that's no reason to stop And in fact, we are now capturing it really intentionally. We will fail, but we will try again, making room for one person at a time until our capacity to welcome grows. Because ultimately, hell is the experience of those of us too closed off to let ourselves be hosted by God or welcome who God would make family. But where God's welcome is honoured, the kingdom of heaven is already breaking in. Amen. From our favourite theologian, Walter Brueggemann, this morning, a beautiful quote. Here is the good news. Out beyond the world of exclusion and rejection and hostility, there is on offer a world of welcome that sees the other not as a threat or competitor, but as cohort on the pilgrimage of humanity. That alternative world of welcome is signed by bread and by wine, but it is known by lives that reach out and touch in order to heal and transform.
may it be so in our lives together. Let's pray. Lord God, open our eyes and our ears to receive your vision for our church as it unfolds. Show us our part within it. Teach us, change us, and enable us for service wherever you might take us to your praise and your glory. Amen.